I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Jonathan, maybe for this episode, we'll just switch to Holy instead of our familiar uh, yes. title. <laughs> Guilt-ridden. We must drop anything that sounds sacrilegious because we are in the, what are we on? We're on sort of day nine or day eight as we talk of the 10 days right. of penitence and atonement and repentance. And the big one, Yom Kippur, the big day itself, Judgment Day, is very nearly upon us. So you're right. Best behavior. Exactly, exactly. So best behavior for our Yom Kippur episode, our fast episode, if you will, or fast. Uh, No, yeah, I would say fast. (laughs) Yes, gosh, yes, you're right. It sounded so ridiculous when you said it. I thought, of course I wouldn't say that. But yes, that is what I say. Um, we're, We're about to fast, long A. Um, And so, yes, I just thought, we both thought it would be nice just to sort of check in Mm -hmm. before we all disappear in a world of, I mean, I don't know how you do it. I'm quite hardcore on this. No screens, no phones, no devices. In fact, I've just had a big discussion with my kids um, about the how how rigorously I'm going to enforce the no screens, no gadgets, no phones rule. And uh, I'm hardcore on that. I think it's 25 hours where you sort of retreat from modernity is how I see it. I want it to be a bit bit timeless and a bit ancient. I surprisingly see it the exact same way as you do. That is surprising. Go on. How how do you enforce it? Um, No, and not in my household. (laughs) I mean, in general. (laughs) But when you have very small children on Yom Kippur and half of the parents in the household are not fasting. um, Uh. So there's a kind of, you know, difference uh, between... um, the uh, different aspects of the family, but the parts yes. of us who are fasting, i.e. me, um, are in fact going to enforce that role on themselves. So I'm I'm a bit intrigued by kind of who and who fasts and who doesn't. So here in, I, I was going to say in Britain, but maybe in diaspora, I think lots of people who have almost no link anymore with the religion, or even in many cases, the cult, the culture or the community, that's the last thing to go. They hold on to that. So people who could not explain it in any kind of religious or, you know, belief kind of way, nevertheless fast out of sort of solidarity with other Jews and, you know, crudely, almost ancestor worship. You know, my parents did, my grandparents, great-grandparents, I'm going to fast. So you see all kinds of people who really, you know, probably wouldn't know one end of a prayer but from the other and wouldn't subscribe to any kind of doctrinal beliefs, will nevertheless withhold from eating or drinking for Yom Kippur. My assumption always was you kind of need to do that in diaspora because how else do you identify with your fellow Jews? My guess and assumption was in Israel, why do you even, apart from people who are capital R religious, why would anybody fast? Well, you know, first of all, 60% of the uh, population, the Jewish population in Israel, uh, fast on Yom Kippur. That's more than would consider themselves religious in any way. And and I think it, it, it ties into what you said uh, completely. I mean, in the fact that this is uh, a relic of our religion and it's important for even people who, are, who don't uh, practice, who are usually uh, secular, um, so indeed, there are a lot of people uh, who do uh, go through this, and we will uh, soon, I think, give our uh, tips for fasting. It's important, Jonathan. What yes, have you accumulated um, over oh the years? Oh no, I'm, I, I will come to those, and I've got I'm I'm big on those. So really, I, I, before, maybe you can teach before me we something. leave that though, because this is something I'm going to ask again on behalf of my kids. I have told them, mm-hmm. based on my hazy memories, because I've been in Israel once on Yom Kippur, that it's the time when kids can be seen cycling on what we would here call the motorway. 
Americans would call the freeway, but the big fast roads where normally you'd be risking your neck if you went on a little push bike. But the roads are empty and people cycle. Is that the truth or have I spun my kids no, another I, urban myth? No, no. First of all, I, um, you have to say the country kind of shuts down. The only country that shuts down completely, right? No entertainment centers or malls or restaurants or cars or anything. No, no television, uh, not even the news. But there is a difference in Israel. You kind of have to say that between the religious... Uh, parts of the country where people go to synagogue, et cetera, and the more kind of secular areas where, as you said, roads are being are completely empty. So you have, you know, bikes and rollerblades taking over the world and indeed uh, in the in the highways as well. Yeah. See, the big difference here, of course, is that there is no difference right. for everybody. You know, it's a normal day. And so growing up, the thing I used to find tricky, particularly on Kol Nidre, actually, in the evening, which is if you're beginning your fast, you're new to fasting, that you're a teenager, you're already starving by nine o'clock in the evening. You know, you're convinced yourself that this is a starvation thing. And we would walk past, back from the synagogue, past the kind of pizza places and the fish and chip shops, which, because uh. it's not Israel, were all open. And you'd be getting the scents and the smells and thinking, I'm really, really hungry. And then the next day, when you'd go now where I live, you'll go past the kind of crunchy organic bakery, beautiful smells of coffee roast and sort of sourdough bread. And again, it's like some kind of torture. And you are very, very clearly aware then that, oh yeah, we are a minority here. This is diaspora life. Nobody else knows it's Yom Kippur and you're in your own kind of bubble. Yeah. Well, you know, last year here, at least, we also were in lockdown during uh, high holidays. And even before that, there were months of lockdown. So the national joke was, you know, Yom Kippur is no difference. It's no different. Uh, it's the same thing, right? We're just not eating. Yeah. Um, but also, I think another thing that you should kind of think of when you think of Israel during Yom Kippur is that, you know, since 1973, obviously, there's been an extra layer of significance in Israel, right? The Yom Kippur War and the surprise attack by Egypt and 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 Syria against Israel, that is really the biggest trauma uh, Israelis suffered till that point. So that is also something that kind of lingers in your mind uh, on that day. Um, you know, obviously, they completely changed uh, Israel and started this era of, you know. You remind obviously. me of something, which actually, because I was six. Uh, I know you were like minus 26 then, but I was six. And I have the most trying to get the good books, right, Jonathan? I, yeah, trying I'm trying. To get the good books. I, I have the dimmest possible memory of that, but the memory I have was that in the synagogue, the Apicorus was king that day. <laughs> in other words, the the, the non-practicing Jew who had the radio on when they went home and could update the rest of the congregation yeah. on what was happening in Israel. The, you know, even the rabbi then was prepared to turn wow. a very blind eye to the fact that some people had put the TV on wow. or put the radio on. And in fact, as I say, they were elevated to the honoured position in the congregation. And now, and thereafter, I was always convinced that the community needed at least one person who had their ear just across the news, just in case there was a repeat of the 1973 experience, heaven forbid. Um, so yes, fasting tips. Um, so what are yours? Um, I, I, they're not very original, but <laughs> That's okay. I don't want to ruin anyone's diet or anything. Not it's judging. They're judgment, lot, but there's no human judgment. So I'm not judging. Um, a lot of carbs and a lot of water. That's the whole thing. I have nothing, so you, I don't, I don't have anything smarter to say. So you far, you, your, your last meal before fasting will be pasta or something. <laughs> water and potatoes. <laughs> Basically water and potatoes. Yes. Yes. Very good. Okay. So I don't know yet what, uh, often it's been a traditional kind of 
you know, Ashkenazi Friday night meal with chicken and potatoes and all that. Every year I think this is very bad because it's salt and all that. Every every year, and it is elevated now to the status of sort of holy minhag or custom, every year I will say at the table, you know Papa, my father's friend, Morris Davis, always fasts on two boiled eggs. And the kids around the table will go, maybe we should do that one year. And I'll go, <laughs> maybe next year. And that is now elevated to tradition. Mm. Morris Davis, a very close friend from Luton, where my father grew up, fasts on not one but two boiled eggs and nothing else, crucially. Are you sure that about was, that? It sounds like an urban legend. Well, I wonder. I, I, it's one of those things we journalists have, you know, stories that are too good to check. I don't really <laughs> want to check that one. But he would fast on two um, boiled eggs. The other bit I picked up in when I lived in Washington was from people in D.C. used to fast on whatever they ate. They would drink Gatorade. You across huh. the Gatorade thing? We don't do that in Israel. I know what that is, but why? Because it's like sugar, right, sugary and, and... They would claim there was some kind of scientific electrolyte thing in there. And I, you would see all these, you know, knitted kippah wearing DC people drinking this kind of electric blue liquid that, you know, their, their lips and their tongues would be bright blue afterwards because Gatorade is so kind of vivid with chemicals. Um, but they claimed that was really good for fasting. So there huh. we are. Yeah, we need to say that we're not going to do chutzpah and mensch this uh, episode, Jonathan, because, you know, we're going to go back to uh, keeping tabs after the book is sealed and signed, I think. We don't want to be judgmental. That's our thing, isn't it? So we're not going to get <laughs> ourselves in trouble by judging people harshly, which is what our chutzpah award normally entails. It's a bit of loshing, <laughs> as you will hear, which is the anglicized version of Lashan Hara, bitching about people, <laughs> evil tongue. So we're not going to do it. We could do mensch, but we're not even going to do that because we don't want to play. As careful as possible, right. We just want to play we, as careful. We, but we, what, we what, just, we, what are we going to do instead then? Well, I thought it would be, and you, we talked about this before, we saved it for the podcast, in fact. Before we get to that, we have to talk about what we've both been doing this week because mm -hmm. you've had a very busy day, Yonit Levy, and I want you to tell us who it is you've been speaking to just before we... You started talking to me. Well, uh, I interviewed the uh, Prime Minister of the State of Israel, Naftali Bennett, who became Prime Minister exactly three months and one day ago. Let's say a very different experience compared to interviewing uh, Netanyahu, who had his own fallout with the mainstream media in Israel since about 2015, never gave interviews unless it was in, in a campaign and he wanted to use the mainstream media's ratings. Uh, so Naftali Bennett gave an interview, and I think the most imp interesting thing that he said, really, because there's this question, I think we all kind of ask ourselves, not only inside Israel, but outside, you know, who are you? Who are you, Naftali Bennett? You used to be a politician, this hardliner from the right who would attack Netanyahu all the time, trying to pull him more to the right. And now you started a co an unexpected coalition with uh, people from the left and from the center and in, for the first time in the Arab party. So what are your views and what are your ideologies? And he gave his own version. Remember, we talked about Ariel Sharon, who spoke about the things you see from opposition or not the things you see from, from the prime minister's office. And he was the architect of the uh, settlements who became the architect of the dismantling of the settlements. So Naftali gave his own version of that. And he said, you know, when I asked him again and again about the sort of discrepancy and the things that he used to say in his policy now, and he said, when I enter the prime minister's office, I essentially throw away the politician I was, which I thought was a very interesting thing to say. 
You've obviously interviewed him lots of times before, but mm-hmm. not as prime minister. True. I'm interested just because the mechanics of the news business interest, interest me. Did he do this live sitting on your set on your show or did you go and see him earlier today? No, I went office? to see him earlier. Usually uh, that's what you do with the, you know, with the prime minister. Again, and yeah, I was the person who broke all the rules in that regard. But Because uh, he sometimes would come on. Right. The, because right, he would just have, you on he the would kind of, but he would give you the call like an hour before he didn't like the person who interviewed him to be very well prepared. He'd come, you know, uh, that is his, that was what he used to do in the uh, last couple of years. This was a sit down interview. It was live to tape uh, earlier, earlier today. Excellent. And I'm interested whether he is impressive as an interviewer. And this is not a political judgment. This is just whether someone is dexterous as doing this. And the reason I partly mention it, just to do my own little bit of name dropping. Which I was going in, to do for you. Oh, go on, you do it. You do it for me, go on. <laughs> because I was not the only one with a big interview in the last 24 hours. Of course, you interviewed uh, Hillary Clinton yesterday, who used to I be the did. next president of the United States. Well, uh, you know, I did We uh, I did ask her because third time's the charm. You know, Joe <laughs> Biden ran three times and and now, now there's no age barrier. So I did ask her that. No, I did. And it's quite true for a Guardian Live event I interviewed. Uh, Hillary Clinton. And it was via, you know, like we're talking now. It was yep. kind of via Zoom. But just one of the things, there is just a bit of political tradecraft, which is some politicians are very, very good at making sure that even when they don't answer, they or you know they get their message rather than your message. And it was just impressive to me because one of the things we talked about was she had said in an earlier interview, actually uh, back in 2016, she had said, unless you haven't noticed, I'm not a natural politician, she had said, unlike my husband, unlike Barack Obama. And I said, so, well, what did you mean by that? Uh, because did you really mean a kind of male natural politician? Because the kind of skills she went on to say about charisma and all this, I wondered if she had a kind of male template. And she was very interesting on that. So yeah, basically that is the template people have. And so I wondered on that score, how good is Naftali Bennett just at the kind of business of handling a big set piece interview with Israel's most terrifying interview? (laughs) You know, he was, um, the interesting thing about him is that since he is still very new to this business of premiership, he was still very candid, um, which is great when you, you're the interviewer. You feel like there's still enough honesty and candor in what, you, what he's saying and how he's saying it. You know, there's this uh, long story about a, a, a soldier in Israel who was killed in Gaza. Uh, Naftali Bennett called up the family and he was very confused. He got the name wrong. It was a very bad, it was a very bad story for him. And he apologized uh, in this interview that, that he gave today. And that was really mm-hmm. interesting. He did, because Israeli politicians don't, I would never imagine Netanyahu apologizing in a million years. Naftali Bennett himself would never apologize before entering the prime minister's office. But there was something about the apology today, which was really heartfelt and very rare. So he still has that, I don't know if to call it inexperience, but trying to say, and I think he's right in doing that and saying, look, this government is an experiment. We hope it will work, but we don't know for sure. And I think that probably can speak as a message to to a lot of Israelis, of course. You, know. the, the, you, you mentioned the journey that Sharon made. You know, mm-hmm. Once you sit in this chair, you see the world differently. You were the one who predicted he was going to become prime minister. So you're, I'm going to make you do another prediction. Do you, can you see him doing that journey and going from Mr. Rightist agitator on Netanyahu, who's right flank, mm-hmm. moving across the spectrum because of the perspective of being in that chair? Uh, from Because of the perspective and because of the kind of coalition that he, he needs to uh, hold together, um, it sounded like that could happen. Yes. The, the difference, of course, is that, that Sharon had 
a lot of political clout when he made the moves that he made. Naftali Bennett, again, is a leader that became prime minister because of a series of unexpected events, and he yeah. has only six mandates. So that's a big problem for him. But it sounded, Jonathan, like he gave up his political base, which was the right, in this interview and said, I'm going to try and find, you know, the Israeli voter who votes uh, in the center. And, you know, of course, the relationship between Bennett and Netanyahu could fill a few books, if not Shakespearean tragedies. But, you know, he never referred to him by name or even by title. He said, my predecessor. And they're supposed to actually meet because by Israeli law, the head of the opposition and the prime minister need to meet every month for the head of opposition to be updated. And he said, you know, I, I extended the invitation, but he's not here. You know, so that is a little bit of um, how interesting it was. I do want to go back to your interview with Hillary, which I actually watched, Jonathan, or at least a part the sort of 20 minutes at the ending after I uh, uh, came back from uh, the news. And I always thought that the way you interview is a little bit like the way that Jeff Bridges acts, which means it's so <laughs> seamless and elegant. Um, and you had that point where you tried to kind of understand from, I mean, she said, I don't want to run again. I'm not going to run. But you said, but are you, I mean, have you given up the desire, which I thought was very interesting. I would say that I think the true answer is probably no, uh, but I, I really love the conversation and especially the part when she turned to the geeky part of the audience and I knew she was talking about me. <laughs> yeah, I felt, I felt very seen. When she said that, <laughs> uh, when she said about geeks, um, loving the Jeff Bridges companion uh, comparison, obviously will that will keep me going for the twenty five hours without food and water. <laughs> Love that. Uh, yes, I thought that was really interesting because she said, "I've got no plan or intention." But she, but what I'd asked her was, "Do you have no desire?" And she didn't say, "I have no desire." Mm -hmm. It is the last mm -hmm. thing on God's earth I would ever do again. Which is what, nope. on a human level. I would have thought she might feel, given how, you know, bruising it was and she's, you know, into her 70s, you'd think she might say that. But she pointedly did not say that. No, and it was a, my, my favourite moment in it was when I asked her if she'd seen The White Lotus, uh, where she is a, <laughs> a point of theme, reference. A recurring theme on our podcasts. It's becoming yes. a perennial theme. And I was just, you know, you'll remember there's the episode where, you know, the middle-aged CEO woman says, I admire Hillary Clinton so much, and her kind of woke student, daughter rolls her eyes and i i asked her if she'd seen that and if she how she felt about being the on, on one side of a generational divide um but you'll it's there on the guardian website or it will be at the end of the week so you can uh hear her answer to that i was going to say that yom kippur being upon us i myself will be in synagogue for big chunks of it but not the whole 25 mm -hmm. hours there's there are periods where i'm not and I don't know about you, but I kind of feel there's a Ben-Gurion approach to uh, Yom Kippur. We're told that David Ben-Gurion would retreat to his, you know, hut on Kibbutz Teboker and read. I always heard that he would read Greek philosophy, you know, he'd read Aristotle or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, rather than, you know, Jewish sources. But it's a day of reading. And so... Um, I think this may have come from you, since you're the geek of geeks, to have our own little unholy <laughs> book club. Wait, wait! I'm taking back that we're not we're not doing chutzpah uh, awards. Geek, you, I'm taking that the, whole thing back. Geek is a, such a compliment in our in our world. Um, but I thought <laughs> okay. you were going to because we cause you calling would, the kettle black. Yes, mm -hmm. what? we're both geeks. So, um, what do we read on Yom Kippur? Because we couldn't couldn't possibly just have a schloff. We're going to have to sit there improving our minds. So go on, what are you going to be reading? Um, so I wanted to uh, actually recommend two books to you, Jonathan, which I've already read. 
So um, leaning into your geek identity. Exactly, exactly. So the first uh, one I wanted to recommend to you is, uh, by the way, uh, my niece uh, bought this uh, for me, which is very strange. She's just started college in New Jersey. It's like, how is this happening? She uh, was a baby a minute ago, and now she's starting college, and she's buying me feminist books. Uh, so this is pretty amazing, and it's a. Uh, um, it's called, it's a nonfiction book and it's called um, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed uh, for Men. And it is really interesting because it's it's by Caroline uh, Perez. I think she's a British. British. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the whole point of the book is really to say that there's no data about women. Uh, because men in, in research everywhere, right, in the health system and in the workplace and the public sphere, they are always the template and the women are atypical. And in every everywhere and in, in every place, this happens. So m- women became invisible. And like one example, and I think one of the best examples, the fact that crash test dummies were always fit for the male body and not for the female body until less than a decade ago. So what happens is that women and, and the whole car and the way it is built have to sort of move as close as possible to the steering wheel. Thus, every crash is much more lethal for a woman than it is for a man. This is just one example out of you know, hundreds of examples in this book. And I think it's it's really interesting. I remember her talking about the way phones were designed as well, that they are for the span of a male hand and even where the keys are. They, it works for a man, doesn't necessarily work for a woman. Um, I had a nonfiction recommendation as well, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, Gordon Brown's Seven Ways to Change the World. Gordon Brown, former prime minister, um, regular listeners may know I am something of an admirer of his, partly just because of the way he's handled being an ex-prime minister, while some of his colleagues have gone around the world making a very big fortune, he does devote himself to good works. And, you know, he would approach Yom Kippur, I think, with some some confidence. He would be, I think, confident he will be in the good books because he's the UN envoy on girls' education and he is his current obsession is getting... Uh, vaccines to the uh, developing world, to poorer countries. You know, he goes around, he still gets on the phone to world leaders and says, this is how much it will cost you. You've got to do it. Um, and his book, Seven Ways to Change the World, you know, the thing about him, he's, he has this incredibly kind of capacious intellect. And so he's taken the seven big problems, climate change, education, the economy, poverty, and really come up drilled into what actually needs to be done. And so mm. it gets quite technical sometimes, but it's a really idealistic and he's, he is simultaneously idealistic and practical. It's a sort of inspiring book, I think. So Seven Ways to Change the World nice. by Gordon Brown. Nice. So fiction, are we going to recommend that as well? What do you think? Uh, no, I, I, for fiction, I did actually say this on the podcast already, but it's just come out again now in paperback. And so I'm all, I really want to give this book a push because... I'm a fan of it. It is, I think, probably the best novel I've read of this year. It's The Passenger, uh, which we talked about because it was written um, uh, in the 1930s by a young German Jew, and the book was more or less forgotten and has been revived by a small publisher in Britain. And they are, the paperbacks just come out, they're giving it their, their biggest ever print run. They re- really, really want this to be a big hit. And it is. It's like a sort of Alfred Hitchcock, John Buchan thriller, but it's wow. set among German Jews on the eve of the Holocaust. And it has all that tension in it. And um, it's just brilliantly done. And, it, you know, the author died very young, uh, Ulrich Boschwitz. He died very young, never got to see his, his book being uh, a, a sensation as it has become 
nearly 80 years on, but it's a really gripping read. It was a bestseller here. And if you haven't read it yet, I think that would be a very good thing to get you through the 25 hours. I will also recommend a book about World War Two because no. um, <laughs> why not? Um, so it's one of my actually favorite books. Uh, it's called All the Light You Cannot See. I don't know if you read it, but you, if you haven't, I think you'll really like it. Um, it's about um, not giving too much away. Story of a blind a French girl and a German boy. Their stories kind of collide during obviously the German occupation of France. Um, a lot of questions, maybe tying into our Yom Kippur theme about forgiveness, about compassion. You know exploring that question of how ordinary Germans could have acted the way they did. And of course, how all this has to do with radio waves and Jules Verne and creatures of uh, earth and sky. I'm not going to, again, give away too much, but it is really a a stunning uh, book. And now, Jonathan, I thought I'd surprise you in the completely negating the spirit of Yom Kippur. (laughs) I don't know. In playing a game. Oh, okay. Which, um, I don't know, maybe we should, I don't think you can play games on Yom Kippur, maybe we should add al Chet. I thought <laughs> the game should be, how well do you, add it to al Chet, I, I, how well do you know your co-host? Oh, right. uh, and we are on the topic of fiction, so I wanted to ask you uh, three questions about your favorite authors, and I wrote the answers I thought you'd say Oh, wow, beforehand. this is going to be good. Okay. This is my note, see, J-F. Yeah. And I wrote the answers in here, uh, and let's see. You want okay. to play? Well, By the way, play, I also yes. have 50 shekels in my pocket. So oh, can, I can um, see the 50 I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Make it good. interesting. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to ask three questions. Let's see. Um, your favorite Israeli author, fiction author, Jonathan? Amos Oz. Your favorite American fiction author? Oh, hard. Philip Roth. Your favorite British fiction author? Boris Johnson. I'm kidding. Yes. <laughs> And we could we can do any time, historical or anything. I'm just gonna go with the first one I've thought of, partly because I want you to win. So I'm gonna say George Orwell. <gasps> That's mine, by the way. Okay, okay. Uh listen. This is my note. <clears throat> and these are the answers I wrote. Yeah, like I'm in the, Euro, Euro, the Eurovision. Favorite Israeli votes I wrote. of the Jerusalem Jews. Oh. Favorite American Philip Roth. I failed miserably in the favorite British. I cannot believe it. I wrote, and I even kind of, I kind of cheated because I wrote Charles Dickens and John Le Carré. Ah, you know, you know, I really could have said John Le Carré. So two out of three. No, I feel, I feel, I second guessed myself because I wanted you to win, and therefore I thought you might say George Orwell. So I went for that, and that was bad psychology (laughs) because. I think John Le Carre would really be there, actually. So I'm going to give you that. I think those fifty shekels are yours yay, because they actually yay, they are quite literally. Fifty shekels are still mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, so like next year, yeah, next year, by the way, we're going to play favorite Italian author, favorite Japanese author, and favorite playwrights. Just so you know, because we're not okay. I think I can oh. get two of those three. Playwright is going to fox me a little bit. But Philip Roth, how predictable? Because two Jews on the news, how predictable that I would pick Philip Roth. That is, you know, Ashkenazi no, Jewish man. No, but you also told in, me in that 50s. you loved the plot against America. I was listening yeah. sometime when you talk. So um, I'm kicking myself at John Le Carre. You know, he has a new book coming up, um, a posthumous book. No, seriously, really? he does. Okay. He, had, he left one book behind, and that is coming, um, which I am so uh, excited about reading. Um, that is coming. It's called Silverview, and it will be published mm. later this year. And you know, I will find an excuse to talk about that on the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure um, you will. You know, I was, I was. Um, oh, sorry, you were going to say something. 
No, I was I was getting worried that we were soon going to have to be having to eat carbs and drink lots of <laughs> water, drink water because Yom Kippur and drink Gatorade. is almost upon us. And for some reason, drink a Gatorade. Yeah. I hope not. We need a Thankfully, scientist Thankfully, we can't get Gatorade in Israel. You know, I was thinking um, about um, this kind of season of, of reflection and introspection, and we kind of ask ourselves, you know, how to be better uh, and how what did we do this year and in our shortcomings uh and it's a season of it's a season of answers and questions right especially in israel and hebrew the word answer is tshuva which is also uh imbued with the meaning of of repentance and there's a line from a book we're talking about books so there's a line from a book that i love i absolutely love uh it is a science fiction book jonathan i know that you're not a fan of the genre but uh it's ursula le guin's book the left hand of darkness and there's this quote that I absolutely love. There are uh, fortune tellers and a protagonist that uh, meets them. And they tell him why they became fortune tellers. And they say it's to exhibit the perfect uselessness of knowing the answer to the wrong question. And I thought about this quote a lot in the past couple of days and kind of swimming, it's kind of swimming in my head because I feel like we, you know, to the extent that I could use the communal we, uh, have been asking ourselves the wrong question this year. And the question is, the wrong question, I think, was when will this be over and when will the COVID cloud be lifted? Where I think the right question should be, um, how do we live with uncertainty? And how we, do we hold on to something when we feel like we're standing on very sandy uh, foundations? So I thought to myself a little bit about how each of us can think of the person they would, would never have met without uh, this crazy year and the experiences we never would have had without this. And, you know, even the time we spent with our children, which is a gift that this year uh, gave us. And I think that I should, you know, tell you that this podcast would never have happened without a lot of thinking during the first wave of uh, coronavirus. So um, that was a very long-winded way. I remind you that I started this with talking about science fiction. That's a very long-winded way of telling you you should read science fiction. <laughs> I like that. And that I'm thankful about, you know, for this podcast. I, I, that, I'm very touched by that. I think that's a good, good thought. I love this point about the right answer to the wrong question or the wrong answer to the right question, but I think that's great. I, it makes me just think of one thought, which is timely for Yom Kippur, which is reading the right word the wrong way. And that <laughs> is that there was the late Rabbi Hugo Grin used to say that instead of thinking of the Day of Atonement, we're reading the word wrong. And what it really is saying is the day of at one month. Hmm. This is the day we are at one. And, you know, it's just the, it's just a word, but you look at it very differently. And maybe instead of it being kind of sackcloth and ashes and beating ourselves up, it is a day where we are at one. I have to say, I've, it's one of, those, one of the reasons why I like the no screens and everything is the feeling that Jews all over the world at the same time are doing this. And your point about 60% of Israelis are fasting. There will be people in South Africa and Argentina and Germany and Russia and London and Tel Aviv and all over the world who at that point are going through something similar. And so the idea of it being a day of at one month, which is the wrong way to read the right word, maybe, or the right <laughs> way to read the wrong word. Um, I feel that too. And I think our podcast is hopefully part of connecting those people uh, in our own small way. Um, we are really, I can feel the metaphorical kettle boiling while people are thinking, come on, we've got to get to Shul for Kol Nidre. So <laughs> we should wrap up and I will say that you can find us as always on Instagram at two Jews, no numbers, just letters. Do subscribe and follow. 
rate us if you do that on your podcast apps. Do it even if you don't do it. It all helps um, as we forge ahead with Unholy. Yes, and we shall say thank you to Lior Friedman, our executive producer, Rom Atik, Yair Bashan, and Irad Eshel for original music. Jonathan, have an easy fast. I promise before my fast ends two hours before yours does, I will not text you my <laughs> lovely hamburger table. Uh, and I will wait for two hours until you write me that everything's fine. Gemar Chatimatova. Gemar Chatimatova. I was going to say that actually that is a whole other podcast of how you break your fast. We'll have to do that <laughs> next time because we will be back in our usual slot on uh, next week on Friday. This was a bit of a special one for Yom Kippur. But next time we can talk all about that and Sukkot. It's going to be, it's sort of hugtastic. It's festival-tastic part of the year. Um, but yeah, very fast well, be well, and talk to you next time, Yoni. Yoni.